you're sitting in a traffic jam a full hour away from your job. A high stress, high performance, fast lane sort of work that has grown old. Now it's making you feel old and leaving you totally unfulfilled. It takes you away from your family and makes you miss most of the important events in their lives. One thing this current pandemic has done for us is to cause us to examine carefully just how fulfilling our life's work is. Today, a high number of people have reevaluated their lives and concluded that it just isn't good enough. Then one day, you walk out and leave it all behind. Now you're searching for something real, a totally different kind of life that matches all those dreams you used to have. That's the way it was for today's guest, Rory Groves. He examined hundreds of occupations that have survived at least 230 years since America's founding, scoring them according to their stability, family-centeredness, income, and other factors. He then ranked these professions from most durable to least. All this is in his highly unusual book, Durable Trades. Rory is with us today to talk about his book and his own journey from the high-tech industry to homesteading. I was very blessed by the grace of God to be born into a loving Christian family, uh, both my wife and I. Uh, we were raised in Christian homes. My wife's uh, family, my wife's father, so my father-in-law is a pastor, Lutheran pastor here in Minnesota. Um, and uh, I descend from uh, generations of uh, Pentecostal believers. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather was uh, uh, district superintendent for Assemblies of God in Michigan for a time. So uh -huh. uh, very wonderful family. I was uh, uh, introduced to Jesus at a very young age in my life and have uh, always made, um, uh, tried to continue that uh, inheritance uh, and, and receive that blessing in my family. And then now we have, we are raising five kids of our own. So that is the preeminence importance of our lives right now is to pass that faith on. Sure. We've got a lot to do then. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps us busy. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, now tell me a little bit about your professional journey. This is unusual, and I want to find out how you... You were with a technology company, I understand, and uh, then you moved out of that into something new. Yeah, um, I've been into computers my entire career. Even as a young kid, I was into computers and video games and all that kind of thing. Uh -huh. Taught myself how to program by the age of eight years old. And Wow. Um, that was just kind of my world. And so, yeah, I worked for a number of different corporations and uh, different um, – I worked for self-employed uh, for the lo longest period of time. I was a self-employed uh, technology consultant and owned a software company. And um, one of the things that I discovered, we moved out to a hobby farm about nine years ago and uh, didn't really plan for my anything in my vocation to change. But we started adding children to the family and – and started doing a little more things on the land. And, you know, it's really a fascinating experience if you come out of a city or a suburban life where you're really used to having all the roads paved and all the grocery store shelves stocked and everything you need is in some building somewhere to begin to live and produce off of the land. It's a very interesting uh, um, experience because all of a sudden, a number of different uh, realities of life of just being human and in scripture, a lot of the agrarian concepts start to become more real and concrete to you. Whereas sure. you maybe kind of took these concepts from the Bible more as analogies, but you didn't really know how to relate to them. Well, when you're actually pruning trees or you're actually separating goats and sheep or 
you know, uh, uh, pulling weeds or planting seeds. There's all these concepts that become very alive sure. in this agrarian type of agricultural context. And so this, as you can imagine, I'm starting to do more of this with our family. We're adding some animals and we're growing a garden and we're doing all these things together. Yeah. This is a huge contrast to my world of high technology where everything is ethereal and behind a screen and digits and code and all that kind of stuff. It's completely opposite. So I, I started to feel um, just this contrast and one life was beginning to feel more false to me, which was the technology world. I wow. mean, it's real in the sense that it's there. I'm talking to you halfway around the world right now through uh, uh, techno uh, technological advances. But at the same time, it wasn't bringing my work sphere, my technology sphere was not bringing the kind of fulfillment that I was experiencing with my family on my farm. Sure. And so that's really what started the shift in my heart towards looking around for another another path forward than the one I was on. Well, that's very, very interesting. Um, I'm thinking uh, you were doing what we call them the greatest generation. Now you know who they were, yeah. World War II generation. I, from what I can understand, most of the people in that generation came from farms. Mm, certainly. Um, at least I, I know a lot of them with that kind of background. And I think that was um, that was kind of essential training for becoming an outstanding human being. Mm. That you're close to, the, close to the soil, close to God, close to family. And I think those were a great, uh, a great generation there. And I'd like to see that come back. I hope that's what comes of, of what you're doing here. Thomas Jefferson, you know, spoke fondly of the yeoman farmer. And really, the founding fathers really uh, uh, necessitated the American Republic relying on self-sufficient family farms. Yeah, and sure. If you go back, I mean, the concept of liberty, um, it really meant that people needed to be independent or at least interdependent, but not dependent on government largesse or yeah, right. a corporate structure. So that whole concept of what you described, the greatest generation, yeah, they came out of working the land. They had um, experiences of being uh, of many, many trades across many generations. They've, they inherited that and they had capabilities uh, that were, you know, tested uh, in some of the most difficult and trying times of the last century. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's continue that theme then. Um, you've produced a book called Durable Trades. I'm very interested in that. And I wonder if you could just summarize that book for us. Yeah, the book's Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. This is coming right out of our conversation on my reevaluating my future career. And what I really wanted to know is, are there trades available or are there, let's just say, careers available to someone like me who was looking for something that was more lasting. You know, in the technology world, everything goes obsolete all the time. Yeah. That's been my entire career. Um, and it's one innovation after the next that you can almost pride yourself in throwing out the old and bringing in the new. Yeah. But when you're really putting your hand and your, your resources and your time and your efforts in your life towards something, it gets difficult to see things go obsolete all the time. So what I wanted to know is, are there careers still available for someone who wants to build something that will last? And 
like we were experiencing here on our farm, is it possible to do it together as a family? So that's where that concept of family-centered economies comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, all throughout history, we would see, and, and, and you hear these anecdotal evidences from time to time of multi-generational family businesses that get passed down from you know, grandfather to grandson, great-grandson, yeah. all these they happen, but but are they viable? Can anyone just start one of those up and, and create something that will be more long lasting than the average, you know, seven year career? And so um, what I did with the book is I, I came up with a list of professions that had been around at the founding of our country. So roughly 1790 and are still around today and meet all of these criteria because my my rationale was that if something had survived from that period of American history to today, that means it survived the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. it survived wars, it survived inflation, recession, depression, and all kinds of economic upheaval and so societal upheaval. So those were that was kind of the criteria that cut off. And then I I um I scored those trades according to these different metrics, like their family centeredness and historical durability and resiliency and so forth and income potential. And I I, uh, wrote a book about each of these trades and included a lot of information about kind of the rationale, the reason why I feel like we need to move in a more durable direction. What percentage would you say of the, I think you mentioned 30,000 different careers available. Yeah, right. What percentage of them would you say are durable and that we would be inviting to a person starting out? Well, a minuscule proportion. The thing yeah. that we suck is there's 61 trades in the book. So from 1790, there were about 70 trades total hmm. in that time period. And from that period forward to today, 61 of them survived, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and from the Industrial Revolution, what came out of the last 150 years of, well, 200, really 200 years of uh, uh, of invention and all the kinds of automation and factory production, there were, were tens of thousands of jobs that were both created and destroyed over the same time period. Mm-hmm. And so what we have today, the 30,000 jobs we have today, uh, a very, very minuscule proportion of those will actually be around um, 150 years from now. One, sure. I'll give one example, one statistic from the book is that there is a study that uh, I cite that says 47% of all U.S. jobs will be automated within the next 15 years. Oops. Mm. Yeah, that's something to pay attention to if you're starting out, isn't it? I wonder if they. I wonder if people are. Now you mentioned the family-centered economies in a homestead. Would you Would you define what you mean by homestead first? Sure. So a homestead um, or a home economy is simply re uh, reclaiming, let's say, the view that the home, the family, is the source of material needs and provision. In other words, instead of separating out mom goes to one factory, dad goes to another factory, the children's go to the public schools, and everyone is essentially in a different form of a factory apart from each other. A homestead is where you really try to unite around a common vision, whether it be a family-based business or trying to sustain yourself off of things that you're, you're producing and working together uh, to produce those things, to depend on each other. 
And that, of course, involves depending on your local community as well. I'm not, there's no single family that can make everything they need themselves, but there's this intentionality behind, we're not going to just buy everything we need from uh, another corporation. We're going to see what we can produce ourselves, starting usually with food. Yeah. And then some people move into construction and, and, and uh, clothing and different kinds of aspects of it. But all of that is kind of cataloged in the book. And part of the homestead, it sounds like, is homeschool as well, right? For us, it is. Yeah. yeah. We, we think that's just a natural fit for what our whole goal was, was we wanted to, to build strong family relationships. And one of the key opportunities for us to do that was to homeschool our children. We've never looked back... Um, after getting kind of acquainted with the concept and meeting other families who were involved with it, it was, it, it, it was really a good decision for our family. And, and we're just so grateful to have all of this time to not just uh, disciple our kids, but to also teach them what we feel God's teaching us about living on the land, uh, building kind of more durability and resilience into our futures than they might receive in a typical public education. Uh, you, you mentioned here um, work as as discipleship. What if you'd say a mm. word about that? Yeah. So one of the things that I uncovered during researching this book, and then also just living this lifestyle out here, is that um, work is really, I believe, the ideal context to transmit the faith to the next generation. Because truly, um, you know if you're getting a lecture in a classroom or you're going to church on Sunday morning or Sunday school or, or um, other activities, maybe even over the supper table, there are opportunities for conversations here and there. And and, and certainly intention behind that to teach your kids about uh, uh, the Lord and the law of God and, and the will of Jesus and all these things. But when you're working together, you know, for hours, when the primary thrust of your week is spent together these opportunities to disciple come up all the time. Sure. And, and so work, what I, <clears throat> what I realize is that if we're not working together, we're really missing out on the key opportunity to build the relationships because we're missing out on the key amount of time. Sure. And so uh, uh, I use the examples of back before the Industrial Revolution, right, when the factory system evolved, that was where everything really began to individualize. We would we would take uh, children uh, and put them into coal mines, and they would do one specific task where their fathers might be maybe in the same mine but doing a different task, um, and the mothers would be in the woolen mills, and then you know someone all of these different things. They found that to be a much more uh, profitable and efficient way to work by separating people and putting them on individual tasks. But the problem was they were eliminating that opportunity for mentorship, for discipleship, for relationships to be built. And also uh, when, uh, what parents want, of course, is uh, quality time with their children. Mm-hmm. But you can't just plan that out. You can't say on Saturday we're going to have quality time because you may not, may not work. Exactly. But, uh, it, they, they pop up just um, like serendipitously. Right. Well, I'm going to change gears a little bit here and talk about the situation everyone is in. Mm. which is the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, and people think it's unprecedented. You you mentioned something in there about it's not not really unprecedented. It's not unprecedented. No, we have uh, pandemics, three pandemics a century for the last four centuries, one major and two minor. And what what's unprecedented about it is the reliance on a long 
global supply chain. That we've never had before. And that's what makes it feel unprecedented. But we've gone through pandemics before. Um, you know, of course, everyone now knows about the Spanish flu back in 1918. And mm-hmm. that that claimed upwards of 50 million lives at a time when the majority of people still lived on farms. Yeah. And so the the thing that's different this time is that we don't have that broad base of agricultural activity and manufacturing activity, at least not in a lot of the modern Western countries. Those have all been outsourced. And so we don't have when the supply chain breaks or when there's when there's a bottleneck, we don't have domestic production. We don't have family centered production to be able to replace uh, the missing items. And in the in, during the 30s and the Great Depression, you know, we have family members in America that uh, they didn't know they were in a depression. Uh, they <laughs> they still had their work was on the farm. They still had their food. They had their cheese and butter and they had their other families that they traded with for the other things that they needed. And literally, that was that was the story was relayed to us. My father went through the Depression, too, as as did my mother. Uh, and they certainly didn't live high in the hog. That's that's un- unquestioning. But they didn't know it because everybody mm-hmm. else around them was living in the same way at the same same level. Sure. And uh, they didn't realize until much later that they had gone through the depression. I yeah. Mean, they knew they knew technically, but uh, it didn't really have a a profoundly personal effect on their on them, as far as I can tell. At least the ones I know. Uh, regarding, uh, let me go a little bit further with the COVID uh, pandemic mm-hmm. issue. Um, tie that into your homesteading model and whether or not you think it's had a positive, overall positive effect in some way in the culture. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think it has changed a lot of priorities for a lot of people. I, I just give a quick example of our own family. I mean, we we were not all that interrupted by the pandemic. The only thing that changed was that we weren't meeting with our church for a time and we didn't have any uh, offsite visitors for a time. But we were still working very hard because we were producing our own food. Uh, so we had work and we had food and we had um, uh, uh, all kinds of activities and we had we were homeschooling. So that wasn't an interruption to us at all. Sure. I mean, it's not too much to say that uh, not only was it not that much of an interruption, but we were actually doing quite well. We were thriving. We we were we were able to we were energized by the reality that a lot of what we were doing was important and it was really creating a resilient uh, uh, opportunity for our family where before it kind of felt we were fighting against the grain as far as culture goes, you know, working so hard to grow our own food. But here we were, and it was being validated uh, through what was going around, going on around us. So it has kind of passed over you then in a sense. In a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say there, there was a lot of net positive in the sense that a lot of people um, also were taking a second look at whether they want to start homeschooling. We have, we've had a lot of families contact us about homeschooling, about, starting a garden for the first time. And we've had a lot of people continue that into a year later, even when they didn't need to continue doing those things. They found those activities to be very rewarding and fulfilling, and they continued to expand upon that. So that's kind of um, that's kind of been a benefit. I think a silver lining to all of this has been 
people really reevaluating the priorities they place on work and money and instead refocusing on their families and on their communities and trying to build more resiliency into those areas. And I'm hoping and praying, and I'm sure you are too, that this whole experience of the pandemic um, will in a number of ways renew American culture. Mm. Uh, it really did turn everything upside down, still mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of really terrible things happened because of it in terms of people's uh, careers and homes and businesses and so on. Uh, but at the same time, it turned everything upside down so that people uh, can't just expect tomorrow to be like today. And in many cases, they'll I think they'll realize that they need more than just themselves. They need a God out there, too. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of the younger generations who may be listening to this mm. and the lifestyle choices before them. And I wonder if you could uh, just say something about that, uh, for example, tie into into that the alternatives to college, which I think certainly, you yeah, we've gotten uh, a number of different uh, contacts from from people both who have gone through college and are struggling with the debt that they're trying to pay down now, um, and people who are coming up and having to choose a college or not go to college. And one of the things about the book that I research is that, you know, apprenticeships are still a viable model for people if they're interested in going a different route. You don't have to do college uh, and accumulate uh, $100,000 of debt and then start your life out and, you know, under that that yoke. Um, college is appropriate depending on the profession you're going into, but it is not a one size fits all solution for everybody. And not everybody uh, is going to either enjoy the experience or benefit from it. And so um, I I encourage parents and young people to seriously consider uh, other options. I strongly encourage people to start working long before it's time to make that decision. If you can uh, get an apprenticeship or go to work with someone who's a woodworker or a carpenter or a uh, a mason or a, um, an, you know, someone who's maybe keeping a, an uh, Airbnb as a innkeeper. Sure. These are some of the trades that I cover in the book that have modern day uh, relevance and get a sense for, um, is this something that I'd like to do? Uh, long, you know, you could do this five years before you have to make the college decision. So um, definitely try out a lot of different skills, but I will say that the concept that you won't make any money unless you go to college is completely ludicrous. It is now, for sure. There are, well, yeah, right. At, at one point in time, that was that made a big difference in a person's career. Right now, most of the tradesmen I know, uh, and many of them who I interviewed for this book, are making more money than I did as a computer programmer. That's right. And they continue, the rates continue to go up. Now, that's not the only reason I, you should take a job. You need to consider all the factors. But it's, it's a simply a myth that you can only make money if you have a white-collar job with a four-year degree. When I graduated from high school, if you didn't go to college, uh, you were behind the pack. Uh, and if you went to college, it was at least stated that you were ahead of the pack. Yeah. Uh, you got a head start. Sure. Uh, that's no longer true, mm-hmm. as they're discovering. Some college graduates are realizing that what they studied uh, doesn't pay off in the current market, and they might even be behind the pack instead of ahead of the pack, uh, being a college graduate. So everything is changing in terms of uh, 
what used to be the key to the future. Yeah, well, take the example of just high technology, the industry that I'm in. I mean, we have constant turnover uh, in the technology and the platforms and the, all of the innovations that go into this. Uh, many of the large tech companies, I know at least Microsoft, I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if Google and uh, Facebook and some of these other ones are following suit or not, but they no longer require a four-year college degree uh, for positions in the company. And it's simply the realization that um, it's a lot more about the technical competence of what matters right this moment today. Right. Yeah. And, and by the time you get a degree in college, you might have some good liberal arts uh, backing behind that degree. But in terms of the job proficiency, it might be already obsolete by the time you graduate. Yeah, you spent four years getting behind. Exactly. Uh, because they want somebody who's right there. They can train them on the spot. Right. And maybe in one year they're trained, whereas it would take longer to train somebody who just had four years of something else. There are what's what's popular now is called boot camps where you go in for like a summer intensive for three months mm -hmm. and about, you know, so in about 12 weeks you get a crash course in some of the most modern uh technical languages. Uh, and then, uh, you're ready to go. And a lot of those boot camp programs, which are just independently run, they're not even affiliated with colleges at all. They're just independent private educators. Um, they'll help place you with companies when you're done. So, I mean, if, if that was a direction you want to go, you have a lot better, um, opportunity to just learn, uh, real job skills while you're working or taking a short-term crash course and then learn while you're working on the job. Just because of that, na the nature of that environment, it changes so fast. It's going to be interesting to see the future of college in America. I think so. I agree. Uh, it's going to change radically, I'm sure, as it already has. And uh, I'm wondering about the existence of many colleges and universities in the next number of years. Some yeah. of them are actually gone already. Others will go too because they haven't kept up. You know, a key thrust in the book is uh, is coming back to this work is discipleship. And I really feel strongly uh, like uh, homeschooling is an opportunity for parents to pass on their faith. I really believe that a family-centered economy or a home economy, doing something together with a common vision as a family, God has put a call on your family and he's brought you together for a purpose. It was not God's design to separate the family for the cases of work. He Agreed. really wants families to work together. And I would say that to the degree you're able to do that, even something part-time or on the weekends, but working towards a situation where you're producing together for each other and depending on each other, God is going to bless that and there's going to be much fruit. Yeah. I think the God factor is the number one attraction for homeschool, frankly. Uh, it has all kinds of other benefits, but uh, clearly it's the God issue. And, and I and I think that's the same case uh, with work and with a family-centered trade or economy because it's it's really the design, right? When God uh, brought Adam and Eve together in the garden and then they produced children, and I mean the concept there was kind of the creation mandate or to to take um, to take their calling into the earth subdue the earth and to produce something now with what God has given man. And he did it not as individuals. He didn't create them all separately and send them off in a separate direction. He intends families to work together at this task. And so I do believe that God is calling families together um, in, in this capacity, just as he's called families together for education. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, it'll be the 
the restructuring or the returning to the intent of the family that will save America? Well, those families who are together, who are doing this now, regardless of whether the country stands, and the country will not stand forever no matter what. That's right. So the families that are taking, being proactive, and taking seriously God's call to them, to the family, and building resiliency, and building some of these uh, home functions back into their family lives, they will be resilient even if America doesn't stand. And they will be the ongoing witness to the kingdom as well. They, they will continue, yep. They will be there afterwards, and they will continue on, just, just as Christians have done throughout all the ages. been listening to Rory Groves describing his book, Durable Trades. He launched out in a very different kind of life, one that put God and family first, ahead of all that is advertised as success in a climbing fast-paced world. This is a book you'll not forget, one that will haunt you as you watch your life speeding by, doing what someone else wants you to do. I hope you'll order this book today. You won't be disappointed. Watch for more of our unique guests appearing on our show. Again, this is John Snyder for The Walk. Farewell for now.